Interstate Batteries offers a wide variety of batteries for your everyday needs. Stop into one of their thousands of retail locations and talk with a battery specialist about batteries for your truck, trail cameras, and even those weird batteries for your rangefinder. Interstate Batteries even offers cell phone repair in certain locations. For more information, visit interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the O2 Podcast. Today, uh, Paul and Andrew are here. Well, Andrew's here. Paul is there. And, uh, Paul, where, where are you at right now? I am in Argenta, Illinois. Center of the state, western half of the state. Corn country, bean country, God's country. You're just a tra- tra- headed, traveling headed man. Yeah, headed, headed home, man. I've been in uh, a little town called Powersville, Missouri, the last five days for uh for a work events and it's been cool man it's been a good trip it's always nice to get together with the co-workers there's a lot of things happening with my job and a lot of good stuff with the organization and i'm excited to be a part of it but i'm ready to get home man good so, I'm, I'm jealous as hell you sent me a video the other or a picture the other day at a tree stand deer hunt yeah buddy yeah buddy took a took a quick jaunt up the old 23 to kill deer plains to take a look typical typical andrew hunting scenario when i was up there last year for turkeys i saw umpteen million deer so i go up for deer and i see well, i didn't see anything I, got, I saw one squirrel uh but didn't see any deer and you know what i i at first i was mad i was like man maybe it, i always think it's uh one of those spots you know, you picked the wrong spot. I played the wind wrong. I came in wrong, whatever. But even on the drive out, I expected to see him crossing the roads, and they just weren't. It was pretty warm that day, so I have a feeling that they were just hunkered down pretty well. I mean, it was like upper 80s, wasn't it? Yeah, so I went, I went up for the afternoon and parked my truck and went did a hanging hunt with my saddle. Um, shout out to Tethered. and But the... I snuck in down this creek, and I thought, oh, this is good. Like, I was down a little bit. The creek was actually dry, but it was wet enough that you could catch hoof prints. So there was lots of hoof prints through there. I set up on this. I sent you a video of it. Um, but the it was this kind of edge transition area. Um, I was out away from the wind. Like, I, it all, I really thought that this was a pretty good spot. That, was, that should have been my first indicator that nothing was going to happen when I thought it was good. Because uh, usually it's when I think that I'm in a worse spot or you know in a, in a worthless spot that that happens. But um, you know it was nice to get up in the tree. Uh, it's always good to get out in the woods and just clear your mind. But also to figure out, you know, get the kinks out of the system. And there was a few kinks in my system that I realized needed to be dealt with. One of which I definitely. My platform, I had not taped it up at all or tried to make it quieter, so there was a lot of tinging going on uh, as I was getting up the tree with that. Uh, let's see, what else did I learn? I tried to pick out things that I learned in that trip. My thermocell worked really well. I think I, I heard one mosquito in my ear when I was up in the tree, and they were all over me walking in because I didn't have it turned on. So that worked really well. Um... 
I remembered that it is difficult to find a good good climbing tree with good shooting lanes on public land. Uh, but I'm trying to think what else. My system worked all in all. I mean, like, got in, got everything set up and ready to go. Just kind of, like I said, fine-tuning those little things. And, and I came home and wrapped the hell out of my stand with hockey tape to or my platform. Oh, there you go. Try to quiet it up a little bit. So, yeah, it was good. It was It was a good start to the season. And we will hope I probably won't be out again until the statewide opener. But it was good. So what? So do that's you, what. I mean, that's what two two weeks. Yeah. Hell, I might run up to to the DSA just to just to get up in the saddle. And I mean, man, I haven't bow hunted religiously in a while, in some years. I mean, I went out last year, but prior to that, it's like five years yeah. since I've I've bow hunted. So I need to I need to work that out quite a bit. So yeah. no, it was it was uh, it was cool seeing the pictures, man. Bumdy didn't. Uh, you know, it was one of those things. Like I was, it, it's you always go out, you go out to hunt to try to, to try to get something, right? In reality, though, had I killed one on Saturday night, I'd have 24 hours to get it to. This is as far as how I understand the regulations to get it to a processor that's certified by the state. So that would have been on a Sunday, and trying to find somebody open on a Sunday on September 11th would have been a challenge. Um, so it's probably better that I didn't actually come home successful, but then again, it would have still been cool to say if I had been able to get a buck, buck or something on the first day. <laughs> yeah, that would be cool. Still time in the woods though, man. That's, that's awesome. I think that's what, I mean, if you're listening to this show, you're probably itching to get in the woods. I would imagine Got whether it. it's dove, squirrel, early waterfowl, most of you are going to be. Yeah, you know, bow hunting deer. So I know I'm just chomping at the bit, man, to yeah. to get up in that that tree saddle and start slinging some heavy arrows, man. I'm ready, dude. The, I uh, am ready. You know the other thing I learned um, hunting in the early season, it's hot and sweaty, okay, and your gear does yeah. matter. Uh, so we work with First Light, right? And we'll we're going to talk to them here in a couple days, uh, maybe next week's episode. But the the wick uh, clothes and the lightweight stuff was a godsend, man. I mean, it was like yeah. I got I was wet when I was because I was sweating, but I was never uncomfortable. Right. Because then, yeah, you, you, you know, I didn't get cold. I usually get cold or just miserable. But it wasn't it wasn't that bad because it was, you know, it breathed. The material was breathing and all that kind of stuff. So um, I did go buy a wick hoodie i didn't have that so if you ever if you know their line you got like the wick is the lightest one i think kiln is the next one up and i had a kiln so it was a little bit too much so i well from the tree i had to order one of those uh so (laughs) but you know i have no no problem uh give me another excuse to buy more clothes but the uh so yeah that went well and then we'll just get all of our, our little shout outs here the go wild guys we were all sitting there uh, in while I was sitting there in the tree talking about talking with the Go Wild guys and Derek and he got his bear. Uh, Braden yeah, was Braden. Derek. Braden was doing his his saddle shooting from uh, up in the the tree. But those guys all work yeah. for for Go Wild. And if you aren't a member on there, you're missing out. Lots of big stuff to come there. Uh, shout out to them for having their five year anniversary. I think that's this week, isn't it, Paul? 
that's yeah that's that's this week i'll be i'll be down for for that party so i can't wait to i can't wait to get down there and celebrate with them man that's that's quite an accomplishment five years in this climate and uh man couldn't be happier for that group uh group of people to make it through all the pandemic stuff and all that it's that's big news man yeah. that's that's really impressive so um but yeah get on go wild uh time to go wild.com and you can find us on there o2 podcast or paul campbell uh are the two accounts that we run with on there so um let's see what else have we got going around the state paul um right you know I, I, I i'm like so out of the loop it's amazing i i, I five days out of the state i don't even know what the hell's going on so well i'll, I'll run I, through what's yeah. All right. We got a wildlife council meeting coming up. Yeah, so September, I almost said November, September 14th at 7 o'clock at 1500 Dublin Road in Columbus. They've got the public rules hearing at the wildlife or, uh, district office. So if you are interested in that, um, feel free to go give your uh, comments at that. The uh, statewide, or not statewide, excuse me, back up. The DSA archery zone is open. So for now, until September 24th, you can hunt deer in there with archery. Like we were talking about, if you guys go up there, if you're in that area, make sure you're you're checking your rule book on what you got to do because there is there are regulations as far as having those deer monitored or not leaving, whatever. Just get in there and check those out. Um, there, there are numbers on the ODNR website that you can call if, if, if something's not clear to you. Um, I called last week about something. They did not pick up, but I left a message. They did promptly return my call and left me a message, giving me all the information I needed. So the system works. Just have a little faith and patience. But um, make sure you check that out. And then September 24th is when we all get to play the game. Um. Don't forget, as you're scouting and thinking about where to hunt this fall, we've got the OLAP pro- uh, program going on again. We did that interview, I think it was last week, with Dave Kohler from ODNR uh, talking about uh, the program itself. But get on, check that map out. Make sure you know how that program works if you want to take advantage of that. EHD, Paul, last week we uh, talked to Mike Tonkovich about... We actually we put that out as a bonus episode last Friday, which... Yeah. Um, we don't usually do. We got a pretty regimented schedule of when these come out, but the um, guys over at, at the uh, Sportsman's Empire were nice enough to get that out for us because it's pretty relevant. It's time relevant. Uh, if you've got any questions about the EHD stuff, Mike uh, Tonkovich really he, he did a nice job with that, and Mike is a wealth of information. And uh, I'll tell you one thing I walked yeah, away way from that paul is that we don't know a whole hell of a lot about that disease no we don't you know this this weekend i was with you know a bunch of biologists for the nwtf and and we had some conversations about ehd and, and there was one of my co-workers that was there has he's not a biologist but i had mentioned that we were going through uh you know a little ehd outbreak in a while he said oh have you guys been in a drought and that was how the conversation started well no not really like it's been dry but it definitely the entire state maybe isolated pockets like mike talked about you know so i mean there, there's 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 a lot of questions the one thing that we do know is that ehd is here and deer are dying whatever reason that is it's it's 
actively happening in our state. So, you know. Yeah, and I think the inquiring mind that I have, Mike and I talked, I think it was actually off of the phone call. But one of the things that he said is, is as it's believed, first of all, drought is supposed to be, you know, exacerbate this problem, which is weird because I don't feel like we've had drought in where I'm at in Ohio, yet our county is is, is confirmed case. Um, but the bigger thing is that it ca- is caused by the midge. Supposedly, if you think of it like a tick, um, the midge, only the females bite because they need the blood to reproduce. When the offspring are born, they are not infected with the virus. All right. And those females are only supposed to bite one time. So if they only bite once and they're not born with it, how do they spread it? So that that was one of those things that uh, as we got um, going, I was really kind of made me wonder about how much we really know about this disease and uh, as mike said it you know it doesn't involve humans and doesn't involve livestock so a lot of times it's hard to find funding for that kind of stuff so hopefully down the road we can keep learning more um, about that but for now keep an eye out uh, report it to the odnr and hopefully we can get that first frost to come through here before we have any real excessive damage if you are dealing with EHD on your property, like everyone's different. I mean, you can communicate with the state of Ohio that you have dead deer on your property, man. I, I, I wouldn't be scared. I mean, I, I talked to some guys and they're like, oh, there's no way they're going to come in and kill all my deer. I'm like, that's not, it's not what's going to happen. You know, it's more for a, how's it spread? You know, trying to answer the question you know, to learn more about this disease. So, if you find that deer, one, get a get a uh, what is the salvage permit months for the for the for the antlers, uh, if you want. Yeah, uh, yeah. Follow, follow, follow the rules, you know, and don't be afraid to reach out to the state. They're there to help all of us, you know, manage the resources that, that, that we love and want to protect, and that's the white-tailed deer. So don't be afraid to reach out, man. I can't stress that enough. Yeah, and I know there's a concern, like, if you've been following a buck for four and a half, five and a half years, and it's at its peak, and all of a sudden it shows up dead in your creek, that you kind of still want those antlers. Like, you've been, that was your prized possession you've been working for, and you're afraid to call somebody because they're going to take them. We do have salvage permits. I think if you do the stuff the right way, I can't speak for every game warden or sheriff department or whatever, but, like, I think we can... Though a lot of times they'll give you that permit as long as you know that they get what they need out of that deer, so that you can keep your rack if that's what really if you're really concerned about that. But it's all just help the system, right? So yeah, you're gonna get, you're gonna get to keep your deer. Like they're not gonna come in and like just take everything. It's not that's not how it works. I mean, so. I think there's just a, a fear that that's gonna happen. And, and man, they are there. That is that is a shared resource. Like that resource belongs to the people. They manage it. Like this is. You know, it's all going to work out. Yep. Uh, I think the last thing I had here written down, Paul, was that the uh, my little horticultural newsletters I get, the uh, spotted lanternfly. Uh, just remember, this is another one of those invasive bugs that can affect your woodlands or your home landscape. Really likes the tree of heaven, but it can do damage to a lot of different um, tree species. 
So just think about the emerald ash borer that we had, whatever, 10 or 15 years ago, really swept through the state. Uh, I still see dead ash trees standing around. We don't need any more of that. If you see, look it up, Google it. You're sitting in the woods. You see some kind of goofy bug. They're kind of pretty looking. They're large. Uh, you know, They're super cool. You need, you need to let ODA know so that we can try to keep that one from deforesting any more of our hardwood trees um, on the landscape. Once again, they're not going to come in and cut all your trees down. It's not going to happen. No, <laughs> no, no. So um, let's see. Who are we talking to this week, Paul? Uh, we got uh, big we got dog. big one, man. Big dog. Giannis. Giannis. Yeah. Eater guy. Uh, man, it was cool. It was a good, It was a cool talk. Learned a lot about Giannis and, and his, you know, his life and his process into, into becoming a guide, and moving all over the country, and you know, just getting in with with Ranella and Meat Eater and those guys. Man, it was cool. It was cool hearing kind of like the backstory of a lot of these these people that we see, you know, that are really uh, at the top of top of their game in terms of uh, you know talking about hunting. So yeah. it was cool. I really enjoyed. I really enjoyed our talk. Dude's awesome. We, we get to see guys like him on TV and doing the fun stuff. And, I mean, we always sit there and we're like, man, this is what a great life he has. Like, that's that's so cool. That's what, His his job is my hobby, and that would be so awesome to travel around and hunt all these different species and stuff. But in, like most things in life, it doesn't just happen, right? And Giannis, I mean, we, we kind of get his whole story, um, you know, he didn't graduate from college, which a lot of times we're told that's what you have to do, right? Uh, he went and did some pretty tough labor on uh, ranches out in Colorado where he'd spend all day chopping wood. Uh, he traveled around, took risks, different things like that, and it paid off in, in the long run. And now it, he, it is what you know, kind of what we see um, through all their media and different things. But I think it's a great lesson, and not to get too philosophical, but... My daughter is, is getting to the point where in school it's not as much just fun and games, right? There's actually work involved. And uh, she does like Giannis and she watch Meat Eater and different things like that with us. But I'm like, look, babe, she gets to do every, or he gets to do all this fun stuff. But there was days where he was out cutting wood by hand all day long because that's what he had to do or painting fences on a ranch in the heat and everything else. But he knew he had to keep chopping and keep painting and doing all that stuff. If you want to be an elk guide and then, it, you know, the ball rolls. So I really took a lot away from that in, in, in the life lesson more than anything. Uh, yeah. And it, it, I just thought it was, it was a really cool story. Yeah, it is. It was the, you know, the one question that I didn't get to ask him. And we talk about kind of like the intricacies of how meat eater in the hunting and the filming and all that work. And so it's really cool. But I, I, I wanted to ask him once, like, how they manage tags, right? Like all of these guys, they get some of these super cool tags. Does, does he just like sit down one day with a credit card and just apply for everything across this country? And I, I really, I want, I want, I want to know that answer because there's a lot of people that are part of media or content creators and personalities and they all hunt like just all over the country, all these super cool ones. Some of this stuff's hard to get. You know, like I, I, I wanted to know that we didn't, we didn't get into that, so yeah. I don't know. Maybe we can next follow time. follow next up. Time. Yeah. So. So, but well, yeah, I, I enjoyed it, man. What a great talk. What a great dude. Good talk. I think you guys will enjoy it. Paul, come home, buddy. Come on home. 
Five hours, 29 minutes, my friend. All right. Well, we'll see you then. Be safe. Everybody have a good week. And if you get out in the woods, good luck. All right. See you guys. Yep. And what's up, everybody? Welcome back to the O2 Podcast. Today, we are joined with Mr. Giannis Patelis from The Meat Eater. Giannis, how are you today? I'm great. How are you guys? Doing good. I'm not going to lie. I'm pretty I'm pretty excited because it's like Giannis. My wife has said, you, you realize you get to talk to Giannis today? Like, he's one of your favorites from all the shows and stuff. And I was like... Yeah, but I'm trying to I'm trying to stay under control. So uh, we might let Paul talk. You for a shook while. him loose, Giannis. Yeah, as soon go. as you logged in, he lost it. So, well, so, hey, I'm, uh, I, I always tell everybody, man, I'm real happy that uh, we have so many fans and that uh, you know everybody watches all the content because it keeps us all uh, employed. You know, absolutely, very very good. So, Giannis, tell us uh, and, and our listeners that that are somehow unfamiliar with you. Uh, I, I guess, man, where'd you where'd you grow up? I grew up uh, mostly, I'd say, uh, in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Um, I was born in Indianapolis, but uh, we moved there. I was about eight up to Kalamazoo, and then I lived there until I was probably 18. Um, so I guess, you know, sort of those were my, most of my, like, kid days, you know, were in, uh, were in Kalamazoo before I moved out west. So are you a Spartan fan or a Wolverine fan or – don't don't care. This 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 conversation might get cut real short. You have to remember you're talking to a couple of guys from Ohio, so you know, probably if I had to, I'd probably choose state just because it seems like they're the underdogs most of the time. There you go. But yeah, it, it's really irrelevant to me. Yeah. There you go. And, and we, we get that I mean we ask everyone from Michigan that, and it's just some guys are like, "Man, nah, doesn't oh, matter." Oh, that's right, because you guys have a rivalry with Michigan. We right? do, yeah. Just, that's that's our that's our big Michigan, or you know, our, our big rivalry. So we, I mean, we kind of have to know, right? I mean, we're both Ohio State guys, so we uh, we always dig dig on that question. So I don't know how you guys find enough time to uh, you know pay attention and watch and do all that stuff, especially since it's during hunting season. I mean, I'm going to spike the football, so to speak, a little bit. It's because we play a lot at night when the primetime mm. games is Ohio State fans. So we get to squeeze some deer hunting in. I mean, we'll have, you know, we'll have a bunch of games that, you know, start 3.30 or 8 o'clock at night, and, and, and it allows it. So, but I mean, in fairness, it has it has reduced a lot over the years. I mean, back in college and right out of college, it was just like, that's what you did. Yeah. Um, kids kind of probably take away some of that, too. So I mean, I'm goose hunting and watching Ohio State Notre Dame this Saturday. So I, mm. it doesn't get any better for me, to be to be completely honest with you. So... Now, Giannis, did you? I, I mean, I assume that you grew up in a hunting family, right? Yeah, I'd, I'd say I don't know if it was a hunting family, but <laughs> my dad hunted, or he actually started hunting. I think when I was like, it was after I was born, he started hunting seriously. I can remember when I was probably like five or six. I sort of remember a few. You know, I don't know if it was Thanksgiving or, or some sort of, you know, family thing that we were doing. And it was like, well, where's dad? And, oh, he was out hunting, you know. Um, so he's sort of was getting into it, you know, just as I was, like, coming up. So he kind of had it figured out by the time I was old enough to start coming with him at, you know, whatever it was, 10 or 11. Um, and then uh, I started actually hunting. I can't remember now. It's so long ago. 
I hunted Wisconsin and Michigan mostly growing up. And one state, I think, was 12 to hunt, and one was 14. But I can't remember which one was which is when I started finally, like, toting a firearm around. Wisconsin's 12, and the only reason I know that, we just talked to Doug Dern a couple of weeks ago. And he right, talked about, yeah, he talked about starting at 12 in Wisconsin. So, so I, I mean, you, you had kind of like a, a crazy career trajectory. It sounds like, so, I mean, you, when you graduated high school, I mean, what did you do after that? Did you go to college or, I mean, I, I read somewhere that you moved to Alaska and you were a guide. I mean, that's, that's pretty, uh, that's pretty cool. Was that after or. Yeah, you got all, you got all of it right. Uh, all of those, <laughs> that that's all part of it. Uh, but the, uh, the uh, sequence might be a little bit different, but I started um, right out of high school. I did a year of community college and pretty much just wasted, you know, I think it was probably my dad's money, maybe some of my own money too. And I uh, was really just spinning my wheels, uh, hanging out in Kalamazoo. And luckily I had a friend who had spent the, that same year um, spinning chairlifts out at Mount hood in uh, Oregon and uh, he came back for the summer and was like, dude, I'm going to go back out west. You should come along. And uh, that's all I needed. I was like, yeah, that sounds great to me. Let's go and, you know, snowboard the big mountains was what I was thinking at the time. And so I worked two jobs all summer. I uh, worked the, the swing shift at uh, my mom's, uh, the factory that she was uh, head of HR at. And um, then we moved out to Colorado. And um, so that's kind of how I got out west. And then um, I spent, like, I don't know, a couple, three years working in the kitchen. And at the same time, I just really fell in love with fly fishing. And then I got the opportunity to start guiding elk hunts. Um, more as, like, just like a grunt at an elk camp. But um, I guess I had just enough passion for it that uh, the outfitter, after a season, actually, actually, it was only a half a season of painting and sand. I think I sanded and uh staying a cabin and i don't know what else kind of grunt work had me do help set up the base camp all the wall tents and whatever and then like midway through that season um he had me guiding a little bit so um that's how i really got involved in the outdoors was pretty much starting around like i was 20 or 21 and at that time i was fly fish guiding for i don't know 100 to 150 days a year and then going and guiding elk hunts or at least spending the fall you know which would be roughly three months um you know up there uh in the little flat tops of, of colorado so that's how i really got like embedded in the outdoors and in that space and then i just i pretty much kept after that that same uh schedule for the next 10 years and i was still working restaurants uh, during the uh, off-season, I did some work in a retail store in the off-season. And off-season for me was like the winter, really. Um, because even in Colorado, you can fly fish pretty much all winter long. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I was able to do a little bit of that. But I still always had to supplement the work. Um, and then at the end of that, I did some other guiding gigs here and there, but at, basically at the end of that stint is when my wife and I moved up to Alaska for a job that she took. Um, and then we came back down to Salt Lake for a couple of years. And then we ended up in Bozeman um, about seven years ago, I guess now. Um, so 
that's kind of been the trajectory of that. And so I guess, and so I, I went from guiding and through the Alaska thing, that's how I got involved with Meat Eater. And um, it was interesting, you know, looking back on it, because like all those other jobs I did up to that point certainly fell right into place. And I could use a little bit of all those skills, you know, working at Meat Eater, um, you know, knowing about gear from my retail days and knowing about cooking from my restaurant days and then obviously the hunting and fishing guiding um you know fit right in too so i'm curious when it comes to your move out to colorado and you're doing the guiding both the fly fishing and the elk stuff you talk about the sanding the, the, the cabin and doing all that grunt work but you just took the skills that you had from growing up as a kid in michigan and to use those in, in, in the guiding sense too, or were they training you along the way too? They weren't just oh, doing the guiding. Definitely was. I think all. I don't know about all, but certainly all the outfitters that I've ever been around or worked for or worked with. And it doesn't matter if it's fishing or hunting. Um, they're going to have to take up and comers and and kind of teach them the ways. Like rarely does somebody I think that really has like a complete guiding skill set, just knock on an outfitter's door and go, hey, like I'm ready to guide. Like maybe someone that's, you know, done 10 years as an elk and mule deer guide and all of a sudden they want to take the next step and become a doll sheep guide and then go to Alaska. I think in that case, but for the most part, there's just so, that there's probably pretty high turnover. It takes a person that has a, a special set of circumstances where like, you know, with a family, it obviously gets harder. You know, if you're going to you'd be gone for three months all fall guiding. Um, and I think that, you know, usually it's going to be like young, uh, probably predominantly males, you know, that are willing to, you know, work three different jobs throughout the year that don't have like a real strong uh, sort of like career trajectory or this idea in their head that they're going to make a bunch of money someday, you know, working you know, the financial market or whatever, right? Like, it takes a special person. I think the outfitters are constantly looking for, like, the next up-and-comer, and they're probably looking for just as much. Um, and it's no different than for me working as a producer making media or television where it's like you feel like you can teach people a lot of things, but the thing you can't teach them is, like, work ethic, right? So I think the outfitters are constantly wor- looking for, like, a kid that can show up and if they're like, Hey, let's chop some wood. The kid's like, I love chopping wood, you know? <laughs> and then like you chop a quart of wood in, in a day and a half or whatever. Right. Like the outfitter's like, that's great. Cause I know they can probably do anything. If they set their mind to it, I'll teach them how to elk hunt, you know? And obviously I think, I think learning how to elk hunt there's, or any kind of hunting, there's no substitute for uh, going out there and doing it on your own. Right. Like, you can, st- I mean, one of my favorite things to do as a young guide was to come back after a day of whether it was just me out ding-donging around the woods or guiding and sort of run my whole day through the senior guides and, and you know, ask them questions about what I did right or wrong, whether it was the approach to the zone or whether it was, you know, some calling I did or whatever. But no matter how much you do that, that all helps, but you really just have to go out there and do it on your own over and over and over and have, you know, five failures and then five successes. And then, you know, you get confidence and you develop, a you know, sort of like a, I guess, a for- formula for your own success, you know. Did you kill an elk that first year in Colorado? 
Um, I had I was in Colorado a couple years before I actually started hunting elk. The first year, I'm trying to think. So I was a client. We we booked a drop camp hunt. Um, the first year that I got into elk hunting, my dad was like looking to come out for an elk hunt, and I found what turned into turned out to be the outfitter I ended up working for. I found him. And I was I was actually just asking him about ways to get elk out of the woods because enough people had said like, "Hey, dude, if you get an elk down, like, like you need you need to have a plan on how to get the elk out." So I think I was actually calling around looking for like ATV rentals or something. And uh, he basically had an opening at a kind of a DIY cabin that he had that was like offset from the main hunting operation. And uh, so we were clients that year. We had a terrible week of hunting, like, saw, like, one elk in four and a half days. And uh, long story short, the outfitter came over the last morning, hiked us up the same hill we've been hiking up every day, and walked into the woods, kind of where we had been all day, except he was there at daylight, and we had been there probably two hours later. He was completely missing the elk, and, uh, like, he bugled once, and, like, the whole herd of elk walked by us at 50 yards, and I shot a bull. So that was kind of my first bull, but then when I started working, I can't remember. I, I know that the first year I was there, when I started guiding, I had a guy miss with a muzzle loader. I couldn't believe it. It was one of those things where I was, like, basically bugling and cow calling and raking a tree, doing anything I knew how to do, and I looked over, and all of a sudden there's a bull standing there. I'm like, holy shit, that's surprising, <laughs> you know? And... uh all of a sudden, the dude's muzzle loader goes off. There's a big cloud of smoke, and the smoke clears, and the bull's still just standing there. I'm like, all right, well, we're not going to get that one. And then I think I, I guided a big group of dudes that wanted to, like, split a guide. The outfitter was flexible that way. And so sometime in rifle season, I had, like, six guys in a cabin, and I was guiding all of them, and pretty much that just came down to, like, you know, setting them in different spots for the day, checking in on them, you know, helping them if they, if they got something. And I think that week we killed two, but I wasn't, like, present for either of the shots. I was, and again, I was probably setting them there because someone else had told me, like, hey, this is, like, a good spot. You should have someone sitting here every day. They're going to come through here. Um, so I guess technically I killed a few, but it wasn't the next year, I think, that I had, like, an archery hunter actually kill one with an arrow where i was present and that probably felt more like my first you know guided kill so just for timeline's sake this is what 20 years ago 15 years ago ish yeah no it's uh that's probably around 2000 or 2001 what was what was, i think i know the answer to this but what was it like out there as far as popularity with um kind of those backcountry hunts and guides and all that kind of stuff because i think you know one of the things at least in my life is people like you guys have have opened this idea that and then the internet in general i mean there's so much content out there of people going west for elk and mule deer and antelope and all this different stuff back 20 years ago i would have never dreamed of such an idea and maybe that's just because of my background but like was it has it gained in popularity tremendously over the last 20 years that you've seen or you know, um, there's two ways to look at that. It's interesting because as as an outfitter and guide, like when I first started, they had a very um, rob- 
free service guided hunt where, like, the dudes would roll into camp, the guys would have backpacks packed, they would go through the, the client's backpack, and they would literally go up in to, um, you know, to where there was no services, no support, and, and basically backpack hunt for a week. And it was, like, a very popular thing for them. For whatever reason, that really fell off. Like, I never even guided, got to guide one of those. Like, it really fell off. Like, the average client just started really wanting a, a more, I mean, I guess, cush hunt, right? Or just didn't see the value in, like, so much of the adventure of going on a backpack hunt and the hard work of a backpack hunt. And we're just as happy being in, we kind of had, like, a cabin-based hunt, and then we had a outfitter wall tent kind of a base hunt. And both of them had cooks and, you know, hot water, beds, cots, whatever. It's just, it's just more comfortable. So I don't know what happened there and why the average client didn't want to do that. Maybe it's because, like you're saying, the average dude decided, the average guy that was going to do that hunt said, you know what, I can probably just do it on my own without paying for it. Um, and then, you know, as the years rolled on, I mean, that was like, those early years, we, nobody had a GPS in camp. It wasn't until probably like 05, I think, when I bought my first GPS. And, um, you know, as anybody knows, man, it's like once you have one of those things in hand and you figure out how to use it, like it makes the world a much smaller place. Um, so I think that and then the fact that pretty much everyone has one now on their phone has like, that in of itself has just given so many people more confidence, I think, to go out there and experience, you know, backcountry hunting without the need of, you know, say, a guide. Um, so, yeah, it, we talk about it a lot. It's really interesting, right, because supposedly hunting numbers are down, yet, especially out west, if you're out hunting, it sure seems like there's just more and more people, like, it doesn't matter if it's, you know, near the trailhead or 10 miles deep and everything in between, um, there just seems to be more pressure, you know. And, uh, you know, more states, I think, are dealing with that, you know, and ha coming up with more limited hunts to, you know, limit some of that. Um, so, yeah, I would definitely say it's, it's gotten more popular. And I don't know if it's just like a small group of people doing more. And that's how you sort of explain why, you know, the license sale numbers aren't increasing. Um, there's probably a number that shows that, like, maybe, like, country, I'm trying to think. Like, if there's more licenses sold per person now than there was 20 years ago, you know? Like, if there's more people hunting multiple states than there was 20 years ago. I mean, that's that's us. I would venture to say, yeah. yeah. I mean, if personally, what, I got sure. three this year, and... and yeah. And I'm not not going out west. I'm um, just kind of staying within the Midwest. But um, and that would have never happened. But then again, I'm at a different point in my life. Where, oh yeah, I mean, you start making more money, and you got you know more opportunity for for individuals. Kids that can wipe their own asses, and you don't have to there worry you go. about that's that. A good, so. That's a good thing getting there. So so Colorado, you what was the decision or the deciding factor to go? up to alaska did you just get bored with it was it a job opportunity uh you know my wife had just finished grad school and um we're she's looking at uh just needed kind of a a job to you know put, put her new knowledge to work and uh sort of like a career stepping stone and uh, we wanted to go check out something you know fun and uh so there was a couple options in alaska and so yeah we ended up in fairbanks 
for not even quite a full year. It was a uh, seasonal position, so I think we, we were up there for like nine or ten months. Um, and then right on the heels of that, she took a job in Salt Lake, and that's what brought us there. And uh, luckily, I was able at that time I was starting to work for Meat Eater, and I was I was able to work remotely. So, how'd you get How'd you get tied in with with Steve, and and what what was the timing on that? So it was while we were in Alaska. Um, his wife, uh, Katie, uh, and I went to high school together. Her older brother and I actually have known each other since fourth grade. Um, you know, she's from Kalamazoo. She's from up north in Michigan, um, Manistee country. But uh, so when they started hanging out, Katie's sort of only reference to hunting and fishing was me. So anytime she wanted to sort of come in on the hunting and fishing conversation, she would just name drop me. And um, that happened enough times that I think that there's like a couple things that went down. Like my buddy Jay Scott had written an article in Western Hunter magazine, and there's a picture of me glassing, and there's a caption that just said, like, Giannis Patelis glasses, Colorado High Country or something like that. And he took that to my to his wife, and she's like, yeah, that's him. At the same time, I think that he actually was, went on a hunt with Jay in Mexico for Gould's turkey, and um, Jay and I were working together at the time. I was actually Jay's fly fishing guide for a few years, and then he brought me into the fold, and I started guiding uh, elk hunts and coos deer hunts with him. So he, he dropped my name a few times as someone that, you know, that, uh, you know, whatever he, he was working with. I think something else, I can't remember. Anyways, it was enough to um, cause, to make Steve, uh, to just email me and reach out and just say, hey, you know, Katie's always talking about you. just wanted to say, hey. And I was in Fairbanks, and he had drawn a sheep tag um, in Tote, which is not far from Fairbanks. And so when we made that connection, he's like, hey, you should come along. And, uh you know, just come on a sheep hunt if you want. And I jumped at that opportunity because living there for nine months, I'd realized that if you want to go have fun in Alaska, uh, you need a lot of money because it costs money to fly places, to take boats to places, whatever. And so even though we had been doing the best exploring that we could via the road system, um, you know, to fly into the bush was like a dream come true. So I went and did that, and the rest is history. Did you get to do any, like, you personally, I mean, how was your hunting success in Alaska in that nine months? Did you, did you, know, you do anything I cool? I personally didn't shoot anything. I took um, a couple dudes, because, again, I didn't become, a, I wasn't going to be a resident, and uh, just didn't didn't deem, you know, the, the money I was going to have to spend for, like, I think the only thing that was available, because we got there, like, January, and I was going to be gone for the fall. So that spring, like a couple months later, maybe like in March, two guys that we befriended or were friends with, you know, some of our friends who lived in Fairbanks, there's like a late caribou hunt off the uh, Dalton Highway. And I don't, can't remember, it might be cows only that time of year, but um, basically you have to be five miles off the highway to shoot a rifle. And so we drove all the way up there. Um, in a two-door Civic hatchback with three guys and a dog and all of our gear enough to, um, like, pull sleds. If 
you ever heard of a polk sled? It looks like a um, it looks like a really basic plastic toboggan, but it's like a thousand dollar version of that, and it's got like a metal frame that you attach to your hips. So we carried packs and those, and then pulled those sleds. We were able to drive, I think, two miles to a lake, and then we skied another three miles on very thin snow. Like a lot, we found a, a whole pile of uh, caribou antlers. They were just sticking up everywhere. But uh, we skied out there and killed uh, three cows so that uh, um, each of us could have one. But uh, they, they were the guys that did the shooting. I was just there to uh, help out. <clears throat> they were pretty fresh hunters, so um, I, you know, quote, unquote, did some guiding up there. But, uh, so to revisit your point from earlier, have a plan to get <laughs> this giant animal out. You had three dead caribou in a Honda Civic. <laughs> did you just drive the drive the sleds behind the Civic? How'd you get all that meat home? Uh, you know, I I look back on it and I don't know how we crammed it all in there. I can tell you this: that highway has a lot of frost teeth on it, and every single time we went over a frost teeth, those tires would rub. And every single time, you just hold your breath and hope that the tire didn't bust. Um, man, that's wild. But yeah, we you know caribou aren't huge animals, but I'm guessing we still added, you know, hundred. 50 pounds maybe of of meat and meat and uh i guess we didn't take out any antlers because they're just like those cows the little bitty antlers um it was really interesting because they're they're getting ready to lose to shed their winter coats so i've never experienced anything like it but when you went to skin them or like just you know make the gutting you know incision like there was just hair flying everywhere because you could literally just rub your hand across the hide and the hot, you know, the hair was getting ready to let loose. And, um, it was pretty interesting because, you know, when we hunt, we never hunt animals in that, that's when their hide is in that stage, you know, that's probably a mess. That's crazy. So at the time when, when Steve came knocking, were you creating, you know, content, uh, you know, with your hunts or were you just guiding and, and hunting yourself? Uh, I was doing a little bit. So my buddy Jay Scott that I mentioned earlier, he uh, had a blog, uh, Jay Scott Outdoors. I believe it's still up. I don't know if he actually adds anything to it these days, but uh, I was I was writing an article here and there, um, just basically like a blog post with some pictures just about my adventures. Um, and just through guiding, I had spent a fair amount of time behind a camera, you know, just taking lots of pictures and making sure my clients had, you know, good um, you know, documentation of their fishing and hunting trips, you know, and I felt like that was like a, you know, a service a guide should provide. Um, but that was about it, you know. Um, so I was involved a little bit of it. You know, Jay um, and I were probably doing a few YouTube videos. You know, that was very much in the beginning of all of that. And so everybody was kind of like wondering like, oh, should we do, you know, videos on YouTube? Is that going to be worthwhile? <laughs> <laughs> Here we um, are. So a little bit of that, um, but um, not too much. Not not too much. You know, the, I think the reason I the, I was telling the we flew with the same guys that we flew with on that sheep hunt just a couple weeks ago. Where I was up there caribou hunting, and uh, I was telling the one of the pilots that uh, when we were on that sheep hunt together, the reason I got hired on is because I was sitting around looking through my glass so much and just picking up game, you know, on the hillsides. 
I think Steve was like, uh, none of you guys on the crew do this at all. It'd be very nice if we had a dude that was just happened to be able to find game, you know, <laughs> like it's an important part of the, of making a hunting show. You know? So did, did Steve kill a, did he, did he kill a goat or a sheep that, uh, that hunt? He did. He did. We actually had Paul Neese from uh, Vortex with us and, um, uh, Steve killed a sheep. Like, I think it might even been the first day we could hunt. I think we flew in, landed, packed like halfway up this mountain, and uh, Paul Neese actually went up. To, it's an episode. You can watch it. It's on probably the Meteor YouTube channel right now. But, uh, yeah, Paul went up a different ridge, and he could he was glassing to our ridge and basically saw some rams above us and um, kind of did uh, – played some charades you know and uh through the binoculars you know we figured out that you know we had rams above us so we were, we were pretty socked in but in the morning we crept up there and uh i mean just at the right time the clouds lifted and we were like i don't know 300 yards from two two rams and uh he, he put the sneak on and killed one um and then because it happened so fast i think Paul Neese then actually got a bear tag, and then we went hunted bears for a few days. So I guess one of my questions I have at this point in the, the whole saga, did you have any idea that Meat Eater was going to explode into what it, it has come become today? No, 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 not at all. Not at that point. I mean, I liked, I could tell that, you know, what Steve was doing was something different. Um and, you know, that certainly intrigued me, you know, about the whole thing. I could, you know, his just, uh, his brain power is pretty impressive. You know, that dude, that dude's a thinker and then can express his thoughts extremely well. And, um, you know, that was very apparent, you know, early on. And, uh, you know, I was impressed by, you know, just his sort of, um, just overall woodsmanship. You know, a lot of us are, at the time, you know, I, I would have, I would have been like, yeah, I'm an elk hunter. That's like really all I. Well, no, I would have said I'm an elk hunter and, and then a trout fisherman. You know, so I was very focused, and Steve had a very like broad sort of knowledge of like, you know, a fair amount of different kinds of fishing. He had been a trapper, um, you know, and then had messed around with all different kinds of you know big game here and there. Um, and then when I read a couple, I think I actually maybe read one of his books prior to that trip. And, um, you know, that's what really, like, probably flipped the switch for me is I was like, man, this dude's, like, really making, like, hunting, I guess just um, representing hunting in just such a different light than it had been done up until that point. You know, I mean, it's kind of the same, you know, most of us kind of grew up with the same hunting media that was on, you know, whatever, the early days when it was on ESPN and NBC and it kind of slowly switched over to the those smaller cable networks but uh you know steve's take on it was just so uh so fresh and different even though it's like what was always weird about it and even now when people say oh yeah like you guys have done so much to you know change hunting this that and the other and so much good for hunting and i'm like yeah but we really haven't because all we've done is sort of focused on like the hunting that all of us grew up with because that's all we did. I mean, we just started talking about like the hunting that we had growing up, you know, and, and how that was. And it was just, I guess it was just different enough from what was portrayed in hunting media that a lot of people were like, Oh yeah, these, 
this whole program's legit because they could just relate to it more, you know. But no, the short answer is no. I had no idea it was going to blow up. I mean, I knew that uh, he was going to have some long legs with with all of this, and uh, um, you know, like anybody, I think at the time I was also just very uh, stoked to sort of have an opportunity to be uh, working, you know, to find, you know, outside of guiding, to find a different way to be working, you know, staying outside, messing around with hunting, you know, because I like being behind the camera, you know, I, I started getting trained to work the camera and it was just, you know, for like, again, a guy with no college education, it was like a, a seemingly uh, decent career path opportunity to, you know, make a decent living and keep doing what I like to do. I def so one of the things when you're talking about all your, your different jobs and when I did this for the winter and this in the summer and I'm one of those people that's like every two weeks I have to know where that paycheck's coming from and I have everything very organized. So to me, some of your adventures would just have blown my mind. I, I can't really conceptualize a lot of that. So uh, kudos to you on that. But I'm definitely a trusted process guy. I'll jump off a cliff and be like, eh, we'll figure it out on the way down. So, I, I, I've noticed that. That's, yeah. that's why we get along well. So. so Giannis, when you're out backcountry in Alaska, did, did did Steve talk with you about getting on board with Meat Eater, or did you kind of get that vibe? I mean, when did, did when did he give you the job offer? Was it when you were gutting a ram? Oh, dude, it's too funny, man. We like we literally had met for the first time when I when I think I met him, or maybe someone picked me up, and then we went to pick up the rest of the crew at the hotel in Fairbanks. And so I met Steve there, and we took a picture to send to his wife, Katie, and. Um, got in the car together and we were driving the whatever three hours down to tote and like halfway there i almost remember it was like because you had to go you had to drive by um oh there's an air force base Ielson, something like that i think i pretty much it's like a long stretch when you're driving by the base i pretty much remember him at that point so this is like an hour into our drive he's like if you're interested in a hunting show man i can make that help make that happen for you <laughs> i'm like Huh, that's interesting, but no, no thanks. I'm like not like I'd be much happier just kind of staying below the radar. I don't need a hunting show and I don't need to be a, you know, hunting show TV host and it's just not, you know, not what I'm looking for. And now uh, he's like, "Okay, whatever." So when we got to Tope, the producer at the time, Dan Doty, he said, "Hey, I got some paperwork for you to fill out so you can um, you know, you can get paid." And, and we're covered under insurance or whatever. I was like, oh, I was like, I was like, oh, you don't have to pay me, man. I'm just here for the ride. Like, I'm, I'll be happy to help out, but I'm just stoked to be here and getting a free bush flight, you know. And he's like, oh no, we're gonna pay you. I was like, oh, all right, well that's great. It's like paid vacation, you know. And uh, so that's sort of how I got offered, you know, the job of. It was basically on a per shoot basis at that time. So when they were going out, because. I did well on that hunt, and they had a second, they had a caribou hunt planned on the heels of that, and so they asked me if I wanted to go, and the position at that time was, it's still called um, WPA, which stands for Wilderness Production Assistant, and uh, it just basically means you're just going to do all the grunt work, carry the heaviest bag, possibly run like the long lens camera, you know, run and get water, you know, help people make tents. And cause a lot of the, some of the cinematographers, at least at that time, necessarily weren't experienced, uh, you know, backcountry dwellers, so to speak. And so 
they might need help, you know, just making sure they got clean water, or making sure they got their tent set up right, or making sure that when it starts dumping rain that they're doing the right things with their gear and, you know, everything to stay dry so they can keep doing their job. But, yeah, so that was the job was WPA, and, and uh, so I did those two hunts in a row in Alaska, and then they had some stuff coming up in the fall. I did turn down a couple shoots because I already had uh, guiding uh, that I had signed up to do. But um, luckily, while I was between shoots, uh, Steve was writing the um, the meteor's guide to uh, hunting, butchering, and cooking wild game, the first one, the, the big game volume. And so I started writing on that project and helping put that book together. And so that sort of helped me have work for, you know, billable hours between shoots. And so that sort of just kept building and building. And eventually, you know, I, I forget how long it took if it was, a year later, maybe, when they actually gave me, like, a, um, a full-time position. Was Steve, like, when, when Steve's like, hey, man, do you want to hunt and show? And you're like, nah, I'm good. Was that, was he just kind of shocked, or was he like, nah, all right, that's fine. I, I was that. I mean, because yeah, Steve Rennell is like. I don't, I, don't, I don't think it really shook him one way or another. He's like, you know, just respected my uh, opinion and, yeah. you know, moved on. I mean, because you know, Giannis, feel like, hey, do you guys want a hunting show? I would, I would, I would literally tell my wife we're moving to wherever today. Like, we're just going to pack her. I'm going to say yes before you even talk to my wife about it. But then she, you know, good for you, man, having that uh, that discipline. I mean, I, so. you know, at the time, honestly, I didn't know. You know, I was whatever. How old was I back then? I guess I was like early 30s, and I didn't know enough about it. You know, I didn't know what it would take to be to have a hunting show. You know, to be a hunting show TV show host. You know, and then. I was lucky enough to then, you know, work with Steve for whatever it was, the next seven, eight years, you know, all the way from that WPA position all the way to, you know, getting like the director credit on those shows and doing every little, you know, step of the process along the way, <laughs> including like directing Steve himself. And getting, but the important part was for me now is that I was able to watch him work on the other side of the camera. And so when they asked me to do that, you know, I, I have like a really nice, um, you know, bank of experience to, to uh, you know, look back on and, uh, you know, just thank goodness I was paying attention, you know. <laughs> so like when, when you're as the WPA or even the director and you're out there, I mean, do you guys get to hunt on some of these episodes or is it just, you know, Steve or whomever the the, the meat eater personality is and you guys are just there for the ride yeah you're there just to work um every now and then like there would be an instance where whitetail deer hunts for example like on a lot of hunts we're the whole crew is there almost the whole time except for like the final stock you know you're kind of always there you know and the producer slash directors sort of overseeing and kind of helping the whole thing move along um, ex except for, like I said, the final stock when Steve and just one camera operator will probably move off to try to get that done. Otherwise, you got, you know, five or six people, sometimes a little bit four, but five or six people, depending on if there's a guest on the show, that are together the whole time. Whitetail deer hunts, though, uh, especially archery, like, don't lend themselves to that. Um, like, I don't know if you've ever hunted with a cinematographer, but, like, 
that in of itself, you're like, man, I'd probably be having better luck with just me hanging out in this tree and not this other dude also here, like, moving around with that big shiny camera, you know? And um, so there's a couple instances where I would just sort of produce direct, like, every morning, be like, hey, make sure you guys talk about this, talk to the, you know, the, to the camera operators, make sure you're getting these shots, if something, if you get a deer down, <clears throat> call me, I'll be right there, you know, then we'll kind of go and do it together. But in those instances, if we were on a, like a, like we hunted a buddy of our farm, that's like 600 acres. And so Steve was hunting, Mark Canyon was hunting. There was still plenty of room. And I was like, well, I'm not just going to sit around all day. I'll go sit in a stand too, you know, <laughs> but for the most part, um, I think if like there's been another meteor hunt or anybody behind the scenes got to actually shoot something. I've heard a lot of the guys who go through like the Midwest whitetail that that Bill Winky would like tease them with with hunts like okay you do this and get this done we'll let you hunt you know and I, I've always wondered if that was something you guys did like all right drag no, this elk like, out five miles Giannis and we'll let you we'll, we'll let you go hunt an elk. No, when you. When you pack elk out five miles, you do get to take some elk meat home, um, which, you know, we've always been good about making sure everybody's got a cooler meat to take home. I guess on bird hunts, like I remember on a Texas Sandhill Crane episode, you know, the guys tagged out one day, the birds are still flying, and Steve's like, dude, like, put a gun in Mike's hand, put a gun in so-and-so's hand, and then, like, you know, we get a few more passes, and couple other people shot birds um but big game i don't think that that's really a thing you know because it's like it's usually you just don't want to break the flow you know once you like if something is harvested then you want to go into you know capturing all of that and then that leads to the butchering and then the cooking scene and then it's just you know it's sort of a wrap there have been a couple times if we finished early and the hunting was good i would uh not get the early flight back and stay and hunt um like for and then maybe extend my trip you know if i was like feeling like there was a good opportunity there but uh not for the most part man you're just there working if you had to guess how how much of the time percentage wise is the camera actually rolling like you guys aren't it's not on 100 percent of the time no right? not at all man um that's a good question. It's <laughs> I'm trying to think what those guys shot in a day. Um, I mean, if they if we were you know out and about and awake for 12 hours, I think there's a really good chance there could be three to four hours of footage, you know, per day. Um, yeah, because I don't think it's 50, it's definitely not 50% of the time, but it could easily be a quarter of the time. And I can tell you this, that, you know, most television, if you see a 30-minute episode on television, it's actually only 22 minutes long because of commercial breaks, right? Right. And to distill down a hunt where you've been out there for, you know, Five days is like the minimum. I don't like to make them scrunch them any harder than that. But, uh, you know, sometimes it's a seven-day or, like, if it's moose or sheep, like a real big investment, you know, you might be out there for nine days. 
And then to, to cram that into to 22 minutes, man, there's a lot left that does not make it, you know. Um, and it can be hard. It's like a hard pill to swallow. When, uh, when It's called a shooting ratio. Like So sometimes on a big hunt like that, you might be shooting like 100 minutes to one minute that actually makes it in, right? Um, in a perfect, there's been a few times where, where they've managed to shoot a whole episode in one day. And, you know, so you brought your shooting ratio down to maybe like five to one or something like that, which is just incredible. The editors love it because there's just like less stuff to, to scrub through. They can pretty much just be like, okay, there it is. There's the beginning of the day is the beginning of the show. The end of the day is the end of the show. Somewhere in there, there's going to be, you know, the, the apex or the hurdle, you know, that the protagonist has to deal with. And then you're going to have your resolution, and then it's over. And it's very nice when it's tidy and compact. To do that over a longer period of time, like, it gets harder and harder, you know. Um, but that's where, like, you know, good storytelling, you know, comes into play and, and knowing how to, you know, how to tell a story about a nine-day hunt without having to be like, and now it's day three. We're waking up again. Didn't see a moose on day three. And now it's day four. It's raining a little bit. We didn't see a moose today either. You know what I mean? Like, no one wants to watch that. That gets real boring real quick. My daughter would appreciate it because every time she has to do something like that, tell us about your day, Annie. Well, I woke up. Um, I brushed my teeth. I came downstairs. Okay, no, no, I don't need that. Tell me about, like, what actually happened, uh, the important stuff. <laughs> I think, to, you know, to your point about the shooting ratios, that's fascinating. 100 minutes filmed, 100 minutes on the show, or one minute on the show. I think it's for a lot of the hard feelings – for content consumers have come from because I mean you, you watch a 22 minute show on outdoor channel or whatever it is. And for a guy like, you know, that just hunts public land or, you know, that does not shoot in these monster, you know, 180 inch deer every year. And you're like, man, like uh, that perception is reality, right? Like you don't see the entire story. You don't see that, that that person on the TV show just hunted for eight weeks to get you 22 minutes. So I think where that's, I mean, you guys kind of started a lot of that kind of, telling the whole story or more of the story, uh, you know, on, on Netflix and, and through other channels. So, I mean, you've been a part of that evolution. What was that like? Just, you know, you're watching content on TV and all of a sudden you're part of the content. I mean, what was kind of the story process that Steve brought you into with meat eater about telling the story, I guess that's a hard question. Yeah. I mean, the, it was interesting because, we the the show was produced and owned in the early days by a company called Zero Point Zero Productions. Um, they're probably best known for producing Anthony Bourdain's shows over the years. But uh, there wasn't a person on that hundred person staff that knew anything about hunting besides Steve and I, and I mean nothing. And you would think that that would like be like just terrible. You're like, well, how are they going to tell a hunting story, you know, when nobody knows anything? But what was what was cool about it is that you had all these fresh people for fresh minds that were very interested in hunting and this thing that Steve was bringing to them. But when they would look at the footage or look at the story, like totally different things might jump out and capture their imagination or or their creative mind compared to like, if you watched it, you know, and so you would tell a story in one way, but they'd be like, yeah, but you know, what was really neat is when you guys were talking about, you know, X, Y, Z. And even though that's not like, like totally related to like how to kill that 
cheap, um, that shows just like more about like it, it, it develops the character because the character is talking about something like else important in their life or whatever it might be. You know what I mean? But like they, it, it turned into be a, like a real good chemistry because you know those editors would always just sort of be able to find these stories that were in there that you know me I was always pretty much looking at very you know linear like how to tell at least in the early days how to tell that hunting story the best and keep it like the most authentic to you know or like what really happens on the hunt and with what I learned from them is that you know what's really important or what it makes for me engaging content is that like you got to become like invested in that character right you want to like know who they are and and listen to them talk about what they're thinking about and, and, you know, what's troubling them or what's making them happy. Um, and then same thing with conversations between people. Like, some of the best moments, in I think, in Meat Eater TV across 11 seasons are when Steve is talking with somebody else and, they, and there's nothing to do about hunting at all. Um, like, him and Parker Hall talking about how to spit sunflower seeds out, right? Like, it's totally, like, stupid and goofy, but, like, it's like there it is you're caught in that moment and it's like it's magic you know or like when kevin murphy you know blows his horn for the first time and steve's like holy <laughs> shit like really you blow a horn every day when you go hunting like that's amazing you know um but uh yeah so yeah it, it's been a great great um uh, educational experience for me you know to learn how to you know hopefully make you know good engaging uh content well i think it's uh, i think it's interesting i mean you talk about and they're just non-hunters that are a part of the creative process that see things a different way you know i see you know i'm scrolling through netflix i'm like oh Giannis honey muck socks i'm i'm in i'm gonna watch that entire episode right or whatever it is i was at an event for the bha and we went fishing uh in long island sound in new york city and i was there's you know 100 people on this boat and and half of them had never hunted and had no desire to hunt, but they loved meat eater. And so, I mean, you guys have done a nice job of telling that story to non hunters about, you know, this is, it's more than just shooting something, you know, it's talking about spitting sunflower seeds and, you know, breaking the sight off your muzzle loader, <laughs> you know, whatever, whatever it is. So I think that's that, that relatable, that's such a hard thing to accomplish. And you guys have done, have done a really, really good job. So, Muskox, I know you've hunted those. What, like, what's some like just some crazy stuff that you've gone in episode or not? I mean, you've you've been all over. Have you gone out of this country or just stuck to North America for your hunts? Um, no, we've been to South America twice, making episodes uh, once to uh, Bolivia and then once to uh, Guyana. Both time kind of did like river. Um, access trips where we you know basically took these dugout canoe type boats with uh basically was the equivalent of like a, a go devil you know like a mud motor if you're familiar with those um like a really long shafted um uh, you know tiller that uh, is able to you know bounce over stuff when you hit it and uh those are both the the guyana adventure wasn't quite as wild because it was a little bit more um like just about anybody could call we might have gotten like a, a little bit of extra sort of adventure but you can pretty much call down there and go through the same lodge 
that is owned and operated by the dude that we went with and go on the same adventure we did, right? They mostly cater to fly fishermen that are looking to catch the uh, arapaima, which is like the largest freshwater fish in the world. Um, but uh, the one in Bolivia, that was like full-on felt like <laughs> there was a camp ahead of us at the end of the river, like where we couldn't take the boats any farther. But I think that that camp has literally been there for like maybe two or three weeks. And besides that, I don't know when the last time like somebody sort of from the outside world had been up there. Because as you move up the river, you're literally stopping in these little villages. You're passing some by, but we were stopping in villages to pick up um, dudes that would help us hunt, that would, you know, just help kind of with the whole expedition. And so that had a real, like, just like, anymore, man, that's what, like, I crave. As much as I love going to Wisconsin and sitting in my deer stand, I love that because it's still new to me, even though I kind of grew up doing it. I'm now really applying myself to it. But, like, even though this caribou hunt I went on two weeks ago, like, and, and this sounds like highbrow and it's not meant to be at all, but, like, I've done that trip now, whether it's for caribou or for moose, you know, I don't know, that was maybe my fourth or fifth trip, including this time we went with Steve for the sheep. And, like, you kind of know what to expect. And, you know, unless the plane goes down, <laughs> like, there's not going to be, like, this real adventure, right? You, know, you just know what's going to happen. And that Bolivia trip, it was, like, every day you're kind of, like, looking over your shoulder and being like, okay, don't mess up. We need to stay safe. We need to, like, you know, don't get bit by some crazy shit because no one's coming to help you. You're not going to get out to, like, a real hospital for days, you know, at least. Um, I mean, that's the time Steve got hit by that. Uh, bullet ant or whatever. Yeah, the bullet ant. What were you guys um, chasing in Bolivia? We hunted, um, i trying to think what Steve shot. When he and I were to get, we were, because the dudes that were taking us hunting, they didn't want the whole crew out there. But we were like, well, it has to be two of us because Steve's hunting and then there has to be a camera. And so we were trading off every night who got to go into the jungle at night because it was such an experience. Like the jungle during the daytime and the jungle at night is like literally, you know, being, I, I don't know, like in Africa in one moment and then in the United States in the other. It's just two different worlds. And um, it's just, you know, you can't understand how loud it can be at night. Like when all the bugs are just going off, it's like this cacophony white noise, just like intensity where you kind of feel like you have to be whispering. The dudes wanted us to whisper to not spook game, but at the same time, it's like so loud that um, you almost feel like you have to talk in a regular voice just so the person next to you can hear you. Anyways, everybody wanted to experience it. And so I think one night we killed a deer. I'm trying to think what else. It was during the daytime when Steve wasn't going to kill a monkey, but the dudes with us killed a monkey. And uh, I remember that's that. when we, we ate a monkey a few days later, nice. uh, which is pretty wild. I'm trying to think what else. We, we did a lot of fishing on that trip. We caught some like crazy white and black striped catfish. Um, they had those uh, golden Dorado in that river, um, which is the dudes that took us were sort of were uh, 
you know, building out an outfit to service, again, fly fishermen that wanted to catch those golden dorado. It's a, uh, you know, for, like, people that fly fish the world, that's, like, a, I think a pretty sought-after species. Um, but, yeah, so I think there was a chance that we would have shot, like, maybe we did shoot some birds. Um, I think there was, like, a crested curacao was a bird that we were after. I think there was always a chance of... Um, Capybara, which is basically like a giant guinea pig. When I say giant, like 40, 50 pound um, guinea pig. Uh, I, I'll just going to say this because I know there's other people out there thinking this. Um, please, you keep going and making those shows because mm-hmm. I don't want anything to do with the jungle and the dark and whatever's out there. So we appreciate you for, for your taking that risk. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that those shows definitely didn't resonate with our audience. Um, and so I think that a lot of people come from that space, like where there's, if, I think if you just took, you know, the populace as a whole, or even like the group of hunters as a whole in our country, like there's a lot of people where hunting to them is, and I grew up with those people, like going to Wisconsin deer camp and spending three to five days there. And that, and that might be it. Maybe you throw in a pheasant hunt there and maybe a goose hunt there, but like, you know, a lot of people's hunting season can be like 10 days or less. And, you know, maybe while you're in deer camp, you actually make it to the field twice out of five days, right? That's like a very normal thing. And it's totally fine to be that way. And I think there is like a, a sliver in there where, like what I'm talking about is like, I like going on those, like the adventures where you're, you're, there's like a really good chance, not really good, but like a solid 50-50 chance on whether you're going to have success or not, you know? And you know you're just going to have to work work hard for it and be up against, like, some serious stuff. And whether that means climbing up mountains or enduring weather or just enduring, like, sitting, yeah, sit weather and sitting in a tent for three days, like, all that stuff. You know how we, like, everybody jokes about type 2 kind of fun, right? Where, like, when you're there, it's like, oh, this sucks. But then, like, when you get home, you're like, oh, no, that was real, man. That was a good adventure, you know. Who who comes up with these hunts? Because you said you, the way you do it. Giannis, if you walked in my office, you're like, I have this crazy idea. Knight, juggle, bow and arrow, monkeys. Sign me up. Like, that's that's a no-brainer. I mean, do you, are you guys just trying to come up with, like, crazy shit that you can, that you can do just to, like, push the envelope? Or is it just... I mean, do you walk into Steve Ranella, Steve Ranella's office like, all right, this is what I want to do. And it's just this insane, like, yeah, I, w- I want to hunt a walrus with a knife. Like, <laughs> who's coming up with this stuff? I mean, it, it, it comes from all different creative angles. I mean, I, I would say that, and it, and it definitely has evolved over the years because early on, it was probably a lot of, and, and I'm in the same boat now, but probably early on for Steve, it, it was like, man, I've never done that. I've never been able to do it, but now I can because, like, we're working, and so there's a budget for it, and I can go and experience that haunt or adventure, right? Um, so there's probably some of that going on where he's like, let's go and do that. Like, I want to go and try. Because I think the way he originally got to South America was he was down there for a um, a magazine writing assignment, and he met this dude, and the dude was talking about how he bow fished for these uh, vegetarian piranhas, and um, yeah, it's a piranha that basically eats like you know 
vegans. You know, aquatic vegetation in, in the rivers. And uh, so once, like, so Steve had that idea, and he came to me, he's like, dude, we got to make that happen. We got to go down there and go bow fish for these, you know, crazy red, uh, you know, vegetarian piranhas. Um, but, like, a lot of it, you know, it can just come through an email, man, or just, like, meeting the right person. Because, again, it's like, it's not necessarily the hunt. It's like, that's why I like squirrel hunting, right? It's like, people are like, why would you even go do a hunt on squirrel hunting? It's like, well, because we got to meet Kevin Murphy. Like, that dude is like a treasure of, of our country. And like, he's just such a cool dude and so interesting. And like, his passion for squirrels is unmatched. And like, squirrel it makes for entertaining television. You know what I mean? And so we went and did it. And, um, uh, but, uh, yeah, man, I mean, it just, it, it, it's a little bit of everything, you know? And obviously it's like, you don't see Steve, like, I can't even remember. I think there's been one episode where he shot a white tailed deer, but anytime we've been white tailed deer hunting, like he's been taking other people white tailed deer hunting, whether that was Joe Rogan and Brian Callen or, uh, Helen Cho and Brittany brothers, um, you know, he grew up doing it. He's kind of like had his fill and he's like more interested in what, you know, whatever, doing stuff that he hasn't done. Um, and so that's probably why you don't, you know, you don't see him doing too much with white tail deer anymore. But, uh, yeah, we don't, we definitely don't sit around trying to come up with crazy ideas. For instance, we've always wanted to go and hunt these Capra Kelly grouse, which is like a grouse that's like almost the size of a turkey. And they're over in um, Sweden. And the problem with going overseas, a lot of times, is the language barrier, right? And so we kind of had contacted a few people, and just nothing ever really seemed to get going or clicking. And then finally, uh, we were hanging out with uh, Rob from uh, Spartan Precision that makes the uh, bipod that we use. And he's like, oh, you want to go shoot grouse, Capra Kelly? Like, I got the dude for you. Just don't take my spot because, like, I want my spot. And I know when you guys go, you guys are going to get the creme de la creme spot. So don't do that. But, like, so he introduced us to the dude that's, like, he's, you know, he's, like, got dogs for these grouse or he's got these 10-foot skis that we were going to use for these grouse. And um, we had a trip planned for this December. Unfortunately, it got uh, – canceled for uh you know just outside reasons that uh you know no reason to explain but it got canceled so hopefully we'll do that but it's just one of those things you know it's like yeah it's going to be a good adventure and i mean we're going to go all the way to sweden just to shoot one or two of these big grouse but uh i guarantee it'll like enrich our lives you know so what is it 10 seasons now the Kevin Murphy episode is probably the, those episodes are my favorite. My kids, they always want we want to watch the moose one. We want to watch the moose one where Steve gets almost attacked by the moose that was wounded. What mm-hmm. if you had to pick one episode? What's your favorite episode? Mm. Well, that's a tough one. Um, it would certainly be something from those seasons of when I was you know, producing and directing the show um, just because there's, you know, there's moments like if you're, if you're there and you make sure your team is there to capture those moments and then they make it into the show. 
you know, you kind of felt like it all clicked and you did your job and you really nailed it. Um, I, you know, one of my favorites and certainly a fan favorite is the one with my dad when he shoots the moose. Um, you know, I hear that a lot. People love that episode, and uh, you know, I can rewatch it and get a kick out of him and Steve arguing about, you know, digital and analog clocks. Uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, the one that we Steve did a solo one. I was, this is something I get after Steve a lot. He used to do solo episodes way more often, and. You know, there's a very different Meat Eater episode when he's solo versus when he's got a guest. And um, you sort of just get a little bit more into the inner workings of Steve's head when he's by himself and he's sort of forced just to, like, talk to the camera. Um, so he did one where we went coos deer hunting. And it was a small crew that time. It was just four of us. And, um, you know, the the episode there was a little bit of action we saw some deer he put a stock on a buck and it was the buck that got spooked by a bobcat um which was interesting um and i didn't get one but like he did a lot of talking about his dad and about his dad passing away and uh what was cool about that one too is that the editor just when he scrubbed it and watched it he had this idea he's like you know what I'm not going to put any music to this episode. It's going to be all natural sounds. Just wind, birds, you know, boots on rocks. That's it. No music at all. And um, now that you hear about it, you should go and watch it. Because, like, it, it maybe most people can watch it and probably did not even notice that it didn't have any music in it. But, like, I just remember that <clears throat> episode coming back after the first cut. We usually go through three cuts. Like, you get, like, the first cut, you get some notes, second cut, you get some notes, and then it's usually, after that, they're not going to really take any more notes from you. They're like, if you didn't catch it at this point, it's too bad, like, we're moving on, and they got to get, get into, like, the coloring phase and, you know, tweaking everything to make it look right. Um, but that was an episode where when the first cut came, and, we, and I think Steve and I even got to watch it together as we were, whatever, working on some other project, and we watched it. And uh, it was one of those things where you just watched it and you're like, holy shit, man. Like, that, like the, we were speaking more about the editor, and obviously we put a lot of work into getting it to, but it was just like, man, he nailed it. Like, just hit it out of the park. Like, we really didn't have, you know, any serious notes to give about it. Like, it was just all there. It was a beautiful, you know, piece of work. And, um, you know, it's something you can feel proud of. You know, when it comes together that nice and you know it's going to be a home run. I'll have, to, I'll have to watch that watch that episode. I've got I've got two more questions, Giannis, if 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 you uh, if you have time. So the first question you just talked about just popped in my head. You said you've got three cuts uh, that you go through. Is there anything that you've ever pulled like that you've watched or Steve watching like absolutely not. That's not going in. Take it out that. It's just funny or embarrassing or just, you know, just something that you're like, that's not going in. I refuse to let that happen. Yeah. I mean, sometimes you just, you have to save yourself or save somebody from whatever. Uh, Steve and I have argued sometimes. There's definitely been over the years times when, um, when like, and it necessarily maybe wasn't Steve, but it could have been a guest that say shot three times or even four times. And, and I'm always like, we got to put it all in there because that's how it goes. We got to show that. And Steve's like, you know what? 
I really don't think it's going to add that much to it. It's like it gets to be egregious. And so we've kind of had like a conflict about that over the years. There's definitely some times when, you know, you can apply whatever reasoning you want to it, but there's like that where it's just like, you know what, it's not going to benefit us to really go down that, you know, route and show five shots. We're going to keep it to one or two, you know. And we've never done it where it's like, oh, it was five, and we made it look like the person killed it on one shot. Like, we still want to show that, you know, something went wrong, then they had to follow up. You know, you've obviously seen it on the show where it's like there's imperfect shooting, you know. And um, But the decision to make, to tell that story, but not have to show it through five shots going boom, um, you know, might be something we take out. Other times when just, like, if it's something that's embarrassing to, like, if it's embarrassing to me or Steve, like, I think we would just, like, always put it in there because we just sort of are, like, we think that that is relative, right, to show you slipping or falling or sliding or whatever it might be, missing. Um, Like, it stinks at the moment to have to show that on TV, but, like, we always get great feedback when we do that. Um but there was a time when it was a dude that, like, just because of his career and his title, like, should be known to be, like, a pretty tough person. And they had a clip in there of him, like, jumping a creek. And when he got to the other side, he kind of, like, slipped and just kind of not quite face-planted, but definitely just, like, all fours on the ground. And I was like, you know, I, I don't know if we need to show that, you know, that guy, right? Like. That, this is who he is, and that's what everybody thinks he is. Like, let's keep him, you know, as, like, a, a dude that's almost infallible, you know, for these 22 minutes. Um, so, I don't know. I'm trying to think of other things that, I've, like, I've taken out. Um, I, I've been more probably nitpicky on just, like, when it comes down to the sequence of events, when you're talking about seconds, and, like, going from one shot to the next, in, like, the hunting sequence, I want those, because it's all boiled down to probably 30 seconds, even if it was a 10-minute long stalk and, you know, this, that, and the other. But I don't want to see, like, a clip of, like, the deer on the left side of the tree, but then when he gets shot, he's on the right side of the tree, but he was going to the left. You know what I mean? And the editor, maybe it just, like, didn't, like, compute to him that, like, oh, yeah, the deer can't be past the tree, and then he's before the tree when he gets shot, so they don't walk backwards normally. Right, but stuff like that, like in those moments, I've tried to make it like as real as possible and make sure that all that stuff is just like dialed into a T that, um, you know, that if the turkey's already looking at the camera, you don't then cut to Steve lifting up his gun, right? Because you don't get to pull that off in real life, right? I mean, maybe you do, but most of the time you don't. Like the gun better get lifted up before the turkey starts looking over at you, you know? Um so I've been nit- nitpicky on that kind of stuff. Uh, I'm trying to think, like, what there's anything that's really serious that I've been like, now we got to take out. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I mean, you answered it pretty good. There was some good stuff there. I, I was hoping for like, oh yeah, Steve did something really dumb or fell on his face. You know, whatever, whatever it is. But I mean, that's because we all do it, right? Like, we all know that there's something. That... Yeah, no, and, and honestly, man, I would, I would always. Uh, be fighting to keep that kind of stuff in yeah. there because it, I think it just makes it relatable, you know, yeah. 
that it's just, it's just not that everybody's perfect and it's always a perfect haunt and it's just success, 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 because that's not how it goes, you know. And, um, you know, people, I mean, there's, it's not like it's a secret formula, right? Like the protagonist or the hero has to struggle in a story for there to be like sort of this outcome to where then you like cheer him on or her on at the end, right? If that if, if they just have success the whole time and then he ends or she ends with success, you're like, eh, right? But if you saw him get kicked down and beat down and, and whatever and then they struggle through something, then all of a sudden when there's the resolution, you know, you're like, yay, yeah. you know. I agree with that 100%. Personal. Yeah. You guys have this this awesome just empire, man, meat eater. You guys have done wonderful things, um, you know, for, for, for hunting, for anglers, for the perception of, of what we do. Conservation. Uh, conservation. I mean, you guys are – I mean, I, I think you've really saved an industry, quite honestly. Uh, what, what's kind of the next evolution of, of meat eater? What can we look forward to? Oh, boy. <laughs> I'm trying to make the next meat eater. <laughs> TikTok, right? That's a... <laughs> I don't know if it's necessary, and I'm not saying that it's me necessarily hosting, but um, I'm always, you know, when we when I have to be like introspective about that and then look to the future, I like to think back to like you know how we got here and what made us, and it's like, you know, without Steve and that meat eater show, you know, none of this other stuff, you know, First Light wouldn't have had the success that they've had, and you know, meteor as a company, you know, wouldn't have become what it is. Um, so I think that, you know, we need to stick to, you know, really good uh, hosting and, and find that in, you know, people and either, you know, bring that out of them, you know, or, or you know, and, and, or just find the natural talent that has it and continue to, you know, work diligently at, you know, being really good storytellers. And, um, I think that that's sort of that that should be like the leading edge of the sword, and then if, if that you know if we continue doing that, then we'll have you know the success that comes with it. You know, um, I'm personally starting to uh, work more uh, with First Light. Like Steve and I have always sort of been, I guess like like the second tier over of like you know the first people that a lot of times would get you know to look at you know gear that was coming out and doing some field testing um but for a long time by the time we would get a look at it even if we had issues with it it would be so far in production that you know maybe you could or couldn't make a change or maybe you can make small change but you couldn't make big change because i mean it's just the way that you know the business of building gear is you know there's timelines and they're they're long and stretched out but We've actually now made it even longer, almost added a whole year to the process so that not only I, but anybody that's, you know, that does field testing for First Light can really wear the product for at least a full fall season, because that's when most of us are using it, um, before there's any talk of, like, sending then said product into, uh, you know, sort of like for final and, and factory production, right? So... Um, I'm pretty excited about that because I think it's just going to help us like really step it up as far as uh, you know bringing the best hunting gear uh, to the market. And um, it's cool now, like we're already looking at stuff that's coming out that's going to be coming out in 24 that we started working on a year ago, 
And so we're going to be gear testing it now because we talked about it a year ago. So we've got like the first sort of, you know, rendition of them. It might even be the second rendition or iteration of said product, but um, a bunch of us are going to get to now work on, you know, live in it, test it, you know, tweak things. Um, and it's cool because we like, we know like the goal is to have it come out in 24, but we're like so far ahead that we know that if something's wrong, it can be fixed. Um, so yeah, I'm pretty excited about that, you know, and really, really being able to tell the story of how we, you know, got in very early on a lot of this product design and, um, you know, kind of were able to help see it all the way through to something that's, uh, you know, tangible and, uh, and that, uh, you know, I, I can personally feel very proud of and stand behind it because I know, you know, what it took to, you know, to build that piece of gear. So, um, it's personal as far as content point. goes, man, we're going to keep making meat eater. We're going to keep making, uh, you know, all kinds of content. You know, my show is slated for, you know, more seasons, um, which is on the hunt. For those of you out there that haven't uh, listened or seen it, and you can see that on the Meat Eater YouTube channel. But, um, yeah, man, we're going to keep doing our thing, um, making content, you know, and uh, hopefully keep it keep it for free so everybody can keep watching it, you know. Yeah. I think from an outsider's perspective, every, everything you guys touch turns to gold. So, um, <laughs> But I think a lot of that has come from the hard work and, and everything that you've put into it. So keep it up, uh, and I think, you, you know, everything will keep heading in the right direction um where can people find you on social media Giannis? it's uh my name so it's Giannis j-a-n-i-s and then underscore putelis p-u-t-e-l-i-s outstanding and that's it that's on instagram i don't do facebook or tiktok i'm too uh too young for facebook too old for tiktok <laughs> that's fair it's all good so yeah. well, we really appreciate your time and uh good luck the rest of this season and uh, we're looking forward to seeing what you guys put out right on man good chat with you guys thanks, thanks. Jonas. <laughs>